Sake savant, Japanese country cooking enthusiast, and karaoke fan, Stuart Sakai is the proprietor of Sakai Bar, a sake bar and restaurant comfortably situated in Toronto's Little Portugal neighborhood that he's been running since 2018. When you first enter the restaurant, the immediate thing that strikes you is not only the beauty of its interior, with its personal effects, vintage goods, and artisanal furniture, but also of how intimate a space it is. It's a tiny 22-seater, but the intimacy really gives Sakai Bar a humble charm and hospitable ambiance. On top of that, the selection. You can find bottles of sake here that are extremely difficult to come by elsewhere in the city. And the food is alluring. Pickles, salads, and modest meat dishes are beautifully set on lovely ceramics, perfect for an Instagram hashtag food porn post. Pre-COVID, you could find Stu behind his bar on most nights, pouring glasses and conversing with patrons. But now you can catch him on his bike, hand-delivering bento boxes on the weekend. weekend. Hey, Stu, how are you? It's good to see uh, you. I'm doing well. Good to see you, too. How are you? Recording live from uh, Sakai Bar. Sakai Bar, yeah. Uh, you can see it in the background here, although I guess this is a podcast, right? So you don't see anything. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, I, so, should, I be, should I be omitting uh, uh, swear words as well? Like, no, 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 that's fine. That's fine. You can keep it in if you want. You can get as raunchy as you want as well. Not raunchy. Be, yeah. From time to time, I might uh, slip up and drop an f-bomb or whatever it's all good all good um so yeah i just wanted to kind of start off the bat um sakai bar is a really interesting establishment when you kind of separate it from all the different japanese restaurants or um, bars in the city um i think the two things that really distinguish you guys is one that your focus is on sake and that your other focus is on japanese country cooking now for a lot of people, you know, my age or people that are just have graduated from university, I think sake is probably, you know, one of the more um, esoteric liquors or alcohols. You know, when you go into an LCBO, that's not necessarily what you're looking for. Um, and so kind of how did you just focus on sake first? How did you get into sake? What's your story behind that? Um, well, it was a I suppose it like started from going to Japan my first time. Uh, which was probably about 13, 12, 12 years ago. Um, and it was just, you know, around. Um, it was, I'm a, I'm the kind of guy that like, you know, when in Rome, you know, if I'm in Japan, I'm going to do uh, like the Japanese do. Um, eat what they eat and drink what they eat. In the, in the way that they do it too, you know, like observe the culture and how it works. Um, because that's when I think you get the most out of it. Not when you try to see what you like of a culture but to try to uh as best as you can uh insert yourself into it um so i started drinking then coming back to toronto trying to find an uh any sake worth drinking um access to it was very limited the lcbo believe it or not like 10 years ago had better selection of sake than it does now in a way wow um so like from time to time when I go to an LCBO, I would actually look, use the app or the website and I would like search to find out which stores had product that I had never heard of. And then I would go to that store and I would buy it. Mm -hmm. um, you can't really do that anymore because the listings are so limited and they're all uh, kind of isolated um, in the, the Markham stores. Uh, there's two products of the world. Oh, it's a bit more up north. Yeah, exactly. So not accessible at all to anyone downtown, really. And like a lot of people don't drive and stuff too. So um, that's where I started drinking sake and um, found that, you know, working at the Black Hoof um, at the time, I was uh, immersed in uh, 
fine cuisine and, and, and beverages and I wanted to learn more about it. No one else really knew anything about sake. I was working with some very talented people that like knew a lot about wine. Um, and so I learned about that, but you know, I wasn't going to, it wasn't it take me years to get to their level of knowledge and experience. And so I thought sake was a good place to explore because um, no one else knew anything about it. Mm -hmm. And I know you kind of refined your palate and kind of learned more about the whole process. You attended, I think, the Ontario Spring Sake Association or something, something along, something like that. Oh, a couple things. Well, there's um, the Sake Institute of Ontario, okay, um, a coalition of various sake agents in Ontario, um, and they get together and they throw an event called Kumpai every year, like a big sake, like all you can drink kind of fest. It's amazing. Uh, it was awesome. Yeah. Um, and it's crazy. Like last year they didn't do it. Um, this year they were going to do it, but then because of COVID haven't been able to. Mm. And then there's, um, the Ontario Springwater Sake Company, which is a brewery, sake brewery in the distillery district. Uh, mm. I worked there for, uh, two years roughly. Um, and so pretty well, you know, like to learn about the beverage, you almost had to learn about the people doing it, learn about the people selling it, learn about the market itself. So that's what I did. For sure. At the brewery is where I very much, like one, got to make sake. Um, so learn about that uh, and get my hands dirty, uh, so to speak, as well as do a lot of educational stuff. I did a lot of tours and, and, and teaching um just random people that would come in off the street because it was in the distillery district, super touristy and stuff. Mm -hmm. and also, mm -hmm. like, you know, go to restaurants or whatever and teach uh, people there about it as well. How did that first batch of sake that you made turn out, um, you know, looking back? Uh, well, I didn't make it, like, from beginning to end. It was more like, you know, you've got the master brewer, the person, they've got the plan, and then uh, you need people at certain parts of the process, and you need a lot mm -hmm. of extra hands to make this work go quickly because mm -hmm. the essence and a lot of things but I, I don't remember actually if it was a good batch or not um as far as their stuff like there's it was probably i don't know why my memories i don't know foggy on those times uh, i imagine it was delicious you know i imagine it was uh, juicy and fun and 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 i probably shared it with friends and enjoyed it for sure and i guess you're probably, I'm gonna take a wild assumption, are you doing almost like sommelier-esque um, activities where you're kind of like sampling and tasting and trying to like, I guess, refine that palate or, or sense and picking up different notes? Um, experience and tasting, yeah, for sure. The, that's, that's how you get better. Um, mm -hmm. That's the difficulty with a lot of people trying to learn more about sake is just not having access to it. And if you don't have access to it, then you can't taste and you can't learn. Mm -hmm read all you want about it but you know at the end of the day you need to taste and uh, gain that experience that's what coming going to japan often uh, helps out a lot right and, and you've visited different breweries in japan as well yeah. over your multiple numerous visits how did those compare you know obviously the ontario um, brewery the one in the distillery district that you worked at compared to compared to that one that you were at it's actually quite remarkable because they are able to achieve a tremendous amount of volume and um, quality in such a small and difficult space. Mm. They, um, 
I've got like the utmost respect for for Kosuke Sun, who's uh, now head brewer, and um, Ken, who's the owner, um, who you know took that risk years ago or whatever, decided he was like, I'm gonna do this, you know, like that mm-hmm. take a lot of guts. Um, and then breweries in Japan, you know, they've got like hundreds of years with the tradition behind their belts, under under their belts, so. It's a lot easier to pull off over there. And also one thing that's different about brewing here and there um, is that at, uh, on Terra Spring Water at Izumi, they um, they brew all year round. Most breweries in Japan only brew in the winter. Okay, so sake is almost seasonal in that sense. Yeah, just just like wine in that way. You know, you harvest the rice and you make sake out of it all winter right. long. Right, yeah. okay, that's interesting. So, so sake is one aspect of Sakai Bar and the other aspect is Japanese country cooking. And I think Japanese country cooking is so is a lot different to kind of the normal Japanese cuisine you see in the city you know you normally think sushi ramen isakaya that's pretty much it why did you want to separate from that um, what was already in the city and, and make kind of something that was your own you know meat, modest meat dishes a lot of vegetables and pickles um, well the main thing was when you open a restaurant is is identity and um the main thing that I did not want to happen was to be clumped into another, uh, uh, you know, category of Japanese food that I didn't want to be necessarily not like associated with, but like you don't want people that preconceptions. Mm-hmm. So you want to give them an idea of something else before you know uh, before they walk in the door. Um, izakaya, ramen, and uh, sushi. Like those are the kind of three. Uh, Japanese categories that um, pretty much every most Japanese restaurants fall into one of those three categories. Now we are technically kind of an izakaya for sure, but what people think of as an izakaya in Toronto is kind of different than what it is in Japan. So the main thing was just kind of wanting to have like kind of create a different kind of identity and for me I'm uh, half Japanese. I'm um, fourth generation Japanese by now mm. with my great grandparents uh, that immigrated to Vancouver um, in the end of the uh, 19th century, 1800s. So- Oh wow, okay. So a while ago. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so Japanese Canadian is, is something, you know, like I could have said, oh, you know, Japanese Canadian cuisine. Because um, Japanese Canadian cuisine is really, really interesting too, and it has a lot of funny little traditions um, where people came to Canada and then they didn't have access to Japanese ingredients, so the cuisine evolved like it does anywhere else. You figure out mm-hmm. what you have, and then you try to make your food with other ingredients, you know? Mm-hmm. And that happened for a long time in, um, in Vancouver and developed a, into its own cuisine. So that's kind of where I come from, I suppose. Uh, my grandmother made a lot of that kind of food um and the thing about it though that was more i think significant to how it came to describe sakai bar was country cooking pickling preserving which is an aspect of japanese cuisine that's starting to even in japan starting to like fade starting to fade into memory as all young people tend to move away from their uh rural neighborhoods and towns and move into Tokyo. Yeah, great migration, yeah. Yeah, and they don't learn these things. Um, so you've got a lot of, like most of the time in Japan, you buy pickles, you're buying it at a grocery store, you're buying it at a department store, 
and then cities will have like you know these like legit pickle pickle shops that specialize mm-hmm. in stuff. But otherwise, you know, not a lot of people make this stuff. And so that's kind of how I wanted to uh, frame the um, the style of cuisine or whatever it was country cooking because it was more ingredient based. It was more local. Um, it was more uh, rooted in the Japanese country t- tradition more so than you know any of these any of these uh, categories that we have uh, outside of Japan. You know, sushi, ramen, etc. Yeah. So going. You were talking about, you know, kind of this, um, the phasing out of almost tradition in in Japan. Do you see legacy still being carried into the future, or do you see um, it eventually phasing out and being kind of like mass produced? If we're just even just talking about pickles or or vegetables or preserved vegetables, things like that. You know, I, I haven't spent enough time in Japan to kind of wrap my head around what their future will look like. Um, you know, sometimes I think of the fact that, like, it's, it's such a small island and so prone to earthquakes. So you imagine like, <laughs> one day, like, you know, the, the mantle might just break and then, you know, Japan will just sink into the ocean or something like that. Like, uh, dystopian. There's a, you know, we had some dark, dark times ahead of us. But um, I think there are more young people that are going back into rural uh, communities. Um, I have a lot of friends that I've worked with over the years um, at the restaurants I've worked at um, that are Japanese, like, you know, kids working on um, uh, short uh, working holiday visas. And they're from all over Japan. Um, so, you know, it's not necessarily everyone that is like, there are a lot of people that don't want to conform to the the uh, idea that the only way you can be successful is to move to Tokyo and, and get into business or whatever. Yeah. And there are still a lot of young people too that are carrying on the traditional crafts of Japan. You know, it's minorities for sure, but you know, I think uh, they're, they're a lot better at it than uh, a lot of um, other places might be. Yeah. Upholding tradition that is. I think it's, it's interesting too, because you don't necessarily see that in North America, this passing on of, of tradition or craftsmanship. Um, I feel like a lot of it kind of gets phased out generation to generation, but you know, for someone who might be going to Japan, they can see that um, a lot of these, like a lot of these fruits or veggies or, or a green tea or wasabi are all kind of like the harvesting and, and, and produ- production of these are all kind of like tradition that are almost like passed down. And even things like commodities like denim or clothing is, is ha- there's a certain craftsmanship to it there as well. Yeah. Um, totally. Well, the thing about, when you think about North America's history, like we're very, very young, you know, mm-hmm. many histories that come from all over the world. Um, but uh, yeah, no, the Japanese are phenomenal at um, getting really good at something, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when I, the first time I went to Japan actually was with uh, my parents and we went there for like a Wagyu beef conference. And so right when we landed, we had all you can eat Wagyu. It was kind of like sponsored by one of the local Japanese governments. And after the first night we landed, I couldn't eat Wagyu for the rest of the trip. And that's all we were eating. I'm yeah. just kind of curious, what's been some of the best meals you've had in Japan or or drinks or, or any any experiences? Um, oh, there's so many. Um, for, oh man, there's... 
obviously like being someone that works in restaurants you're obviously wanting to taste new things like things you never tasted mm. or ideas you've never thought of before you want to be challenged you want to be wowed um some of the coolest experiences i've had in japan are at restaurants that are like run by young people that have worked abroad and mm. then come back so you get this like these young japanese chefs that have worked in france or spain uh, and learn that cuisine and then come back and then let it inform their cuisine. The problem with Japan is sometimes, not, it's not a problem or whatever, but their restaurants, they have so many restaurants, right? They have like right. 10, 20 times more restaurants per capita than, than we have. They eat every single meal, uh, dinner, they eat out. Every lunch, <laughs> they eat out, you know, like mm -hmm. it's built into the culture that that's your that's built into your budget right it's like maybe, right maybe you don't spend a lot at lunch or dinner or whatever but you still go out because you don't really have much of a kitchen at home mm -hmm. closet so the thing is too though is that they have a lot of french restaurants they have a lot of italian restaurants they have a lot of these um uh other worldly cuisines that have been they've done their best to to uh completely replicate in every every aspect you know like they've got pizza joints that are run by these like people that have been in napoli and they spent years there learning pizza and then they come back and they open a pizza shop in japan and make sure it's exactly the same you know like the same quality mm -hmm. same ingredients as they do in italy um they have such respect for authenticity almost to a fault i think sometimes um <laughs> Cause it's still like, it's delicious, but I, like, I'm not going to go to Japan to eat the best pizza that I've ever had. But now, to the Japanese, they want to be able to eat some of the best pizza in the world in Japan. Right. right? They have all the cuisines, they have everything there. So, so but like, it's interesting like that. If, when you have so many restaurants, you're opening up a restaurant, you, you got to think outside the box. You got to do something different. I think that's the same in Toronto, really. Like, that's one of the main reasons. Like, I don't want to open a standard izakaya. I don't want to open a, a standard ramen shop. I want it mm -hmm. to be different or I want it to be better than all the other ones. Like, you know. Talking about being like a restaurant owner, you know, obviously with one part of owning a restaurant is the financial aspect. And the other part is, you know, being owning a restaurant and having to actually sell food and kind of curating a menu and, and being um, intentional about what you're presenting and, and the food that you want to sell to your customers. How do you kind of reconcile, you know, making sure that, because you, you said it yourself before in, a, in an interview that you financials can sometimes take the soul out of the food. How do you kind of preserve that um, so that there's an authenticity and that there's a spirit behind the food? I think, I think people are pretty smart about these things and, and, and feeling and, and have a good, um, people are pretty intuitive about this stuff. Like when you walk into a restaurant, um, you get a feeling from it, right? You feel, mm. um, and I think people are pretty like, you know, they might not trust themselves uh, or, or they might not know a lot about restaurants or whatever, but there's still something, you know, that they can, they can assess or feel from a space um and if you are a restaurant that makes decisions based on financials just completely realistic thing to do it's a smart thing to do in that way i'm not maybe the smartest but um you can sometimes feel it you know mm. um and 
I don't, it's not the first thing I think about when I think about, you know, everything has a value, right? So like if you make a decision that costs this much, what's the value of that expense? Right. You know, like, should I use laminated wood for the bar? Or should I use hardwood um, that's been um, constructed with, you know, uh, hand tools and, and, you know, has, you know, the, the dowels are showing and exposed and uh, all the little details, you know, like someone that knows woodworking is going to notice that detail and they're going to be like, that's a really nice bar, you know, mm. um, that I like that. That's that's worth it to me. You know, and then same with the food and then same with the music and the same with the, the drinks, you know, and if, if someone knows sake and they come here, I'd want them to look at the menu and be like, oh, this is a pretty good sake list, especially for outside of Japan. Like, that's the hope. And that's not a cheap thing to do. You know, sake is not cheap. So, you know, you got to mark it up, of course, but you uh, can't go too crazy because otherwise people aren't going to buy it, right? It's like significantly more expensive like you know per bottle is probably about like 30 40 40 percent more expensive than a bottle of wine for sure yeah and i guess kind of even adding on top of that is another question you're talking about the authenticity of the space as well and we know with covid and everything going on and i don't even think you guys even offer normal delivery pre-covid mm. if i'm if i'm correct um and, and you guys aren't on the i didn't want to do takeout because our mm-hmm. food really take out you know like that's why when we did uh, when we uh pivoted towards doing takeout and and pickups um to go during covid we very much like we just had to completely chuck the old menu and come Mm -hmm. up and we've been just rotating the menu every week we come up with a new menu every week it's um and we're only doing it for saturday and sunday so it's two days it's a little bit more work, obviously, but um, it's more fun. Um, For sure. Every dish isn't like, you know, 100%. There might be a couple <laughs> uh, forgettables, but um, but it's definitely more engaging and fun for us. And I think it's fun for the customer, too, to see a new menu every week, get to try new things and stuff. Yeah, and even something that you guys are doing is um, taking local or seasonal ingredients as well and, and kind of highlighting how it's being used um, in the dishes. Yeah, 100%. That's a very important part about seasonality and, and, and authenticity. I think that people sometimes overlook. Like for me, authenticity isn't really about, like it's, you know, if you're if you're a restaurant in Japan, you're an authentic Japanese restaurant by geography, you know, mm-hmm. by the, the product around you. You're using the things you have around you. So by, by uh, a very, uh, dumbed down definition you're an authentic japanese restaurant right and so the objective for a lot of places tends to be well we want to be an authentic japanese restaurant in toronto okay so that means we need to get all of our ingredients all of our decor and all of our plateware and all this stuff all of our staff everything's from japan you know yeah it'll be authentic um i don't think that's true i don't think that's Mm. necessarily um because you know it's like lost in translation. Like you know, some of these things don't Great make movie. sense. Yeah, I, I I didn't actually need to reference the movie, but so oh, much. Okay. <laughs> there, there are things that are lost in translation when you like just 
replicate or uproot a restaurant in Japan and drop it in the middle of Toronto. Like it's not really gonna be the same thing. And so for me, like authenticity was like, okay, well, we need to use local ingredients. We need to use what we have around us um, because that is in essence more authentically Japanese than bringing it all in from Japan. Mm -hmm. Which isn't necessarily right or wrong. It's so much as just, you know, way to look at it. Yeah, I agree. I think it does kind of promote um, not only the local farmers and and, and uh, fishers and, and the local economy, but kind of presents it in an interesting and new context as well. Mm-hmm. Going back though, um, I was going to talk about how you guys invested so much in your space, the way, the look, and everything, the feel. You know, when I first entered. It was just such a beautiful, small and homey type of vibe. And even you, you were even mentioning about music. And I remember the two times I ate um, at your place, uh, there was Lionel Richie playing in the background. And I remember that was, I think, almost near the closing time of the restaurant. Yeah. You know, does it kind of pain you now that because you've invested so much in your space and the environment that you have to transition to kind of a takeaway or takeout environment? Um, I haven't thought about it too much. I don't think like that, but obviously had its challenges and I wouldn't necessarily, you know, I think there's a lot of other bigger issues or problems uh, in the world, in the city with things that are going on um, that that stuff doesn't tend to bother me too much. Um, For sure. On it, I, you know, we're not allowed to open to the public. We're not allowed to have customers in the restaurant. So, you know, I'm not going to do that and just have to figure out how to, um, stay afloat. Mm-hmm. Luckily, you know, for us, I think if you, the idea that you make a good product, then people will buy it. You know, people will support you if you're making a good product. Hopefully we've been doing that. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, how do you see, you know, obviously every industry is being impacted by COVID. Um, and, and hopefully we're starting to finally kind of see it teeter off a bit. Um, but with everything starting to reopen, um, you know, you hear talks about phase two and, and also second waves, you know, with 50% or even maybe less uh, capacity in restaurants, you know, you guys are only 22 seats. There's going to be a massive impact for you guys, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So we've thought a lot about that. We've got some plans to try to kind of... Um, kind of broaden our experience in a way Mm. Um, and also not try to like we're a restaurant I don't know like I think I position us like in a like a medium end restaurant you know like I don't want to be a high end restaurant I want to be just like below that now you can't be just like you know when you think of price points when you go out and you spend X amount of dollars on a meal per person or whatever those numbers I don't want that to get too steep because I want to be accessible to the broadest, you know, like uh, socioeconomical uh, demographic of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's challenging. I don't know. Like I, I think of just I think of just like doing the same thing what we've been doing with our takeout. Every week we change the menu. You know, like mm-hmm. so. If things are going to be at 50% capacity, then we're going to have to keep keep with that spirit of, of changing it up and seeing what works. Um, 
and just having fun with it too you know like still offering you know like the sakai bar experience but then having some other additional experiences right before we shut down we started doing um sushi nights um every like like once a month we were going to do them mm -hmm. my chefs is a quite a talented um sushi chef um and so like he wants to make sushi and i don't want him to not be able to make what he wants to make so right like, well, let's do some sushi then and let's try to do it in a way that fits with what we're doing or what Sakai bar is or whatever. So we'll probably keep up with that in some respect. Um, it's like doing sushi, but doing it with more, again, like more accessible fish, you know, like uh, most sushi places high in spots, they focus on very much like bringing every fish in from Japan, every fish <laughs> yeah. Japan flown over. And then when you get into that realm, you know, like all your fish, it's like, you know, it's like 30, $40 a pound or something like that. It's ridiculous. It's crazy fish. So, um, we try to work with stuff that's a little bit more available, um, local, um, and just work with it with the best technique. Cause like product is one thing and technique is another. Mm. Uh, and if you apply really solid, knowledgeable like experienced technique to more affordable product you can you know theoretically make something tastier you know in a way when you when you balance out cost versus enjoyment or whatever um it might be better in a way than something that's like twice or three times more expensive one thing's for sure is the most expensive meals of my life have not been the best ones at all <laughs> that's fair that's fair Sometimes it just doesn't end up that way. Well, it's just like the cost of it doesn't make it better. It just means the ingredients are more expensive. The experience itself might not be as fulfilling, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Where did I guess for you, did you have any previous training in, in cuisine or cooking or did you go to any like culinary school or anything like that? No, I, um, I, after my grandmother, um, so my grandmother, when I was about 20 years old, she had a stroke. Um, and that's kind of when I started cooking because no one else in my family knew how to cook the things that she cooked mm -hmm. and that I didn't sit well with me. I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't just let all that knowledge and memory and deliciousness just disappear. <laughs> I, uh, kind of started to pick up what I could from books and then like ask my aunts and my mother and my father, like, how did grandma do this? How did grandma do that and stuff? And was able to kind of approximate her flavors. And so that's kind of how I started cooking. And I've worked in kitchens too, um, mm -hmm. in the past. And then uh, worked at the Black Hook for a long time, kind of. And I also worked in the arts and stuff too. So I had a lot mm -hmm. of different places I worked. For very long stints of time <laughs> so i guess it was actually just a lot of like rolling up your sleeves and just almost experimenting in the kitchen right kind of just trying to match uh, to a certain extent the the stuff that you were eating before as a kid or as a teenager sure yeah memory you know that stuff memory is the most delicious thing really you know like mm -hmm. you you make things and uh Sometimes, you know, some taste it and they just like get transported back to a memory or whatever. And it's like, that's like some of the most powerful stuff. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Definitely 
food can take you back i'm sure like for me that's like roasted walnuts kind of my grandmother used to pick them and then take off the scrap uh, the shell in like mm-hmm. an orange little bowl and sometimes mm-hmm. when i have that or even like sweet potato korean sweet potato it kind of just brings me back and yeah, bring yeah. me back to like uh like winters in richmond hill <laughs> which is where i grew up yeah no that and, and the, also the just the 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 um just not having to shell them at all you know just like they just oh, for sure in front of you you know already de-shelled and you're like thinking to yourself aren't uh don't they always come like this when you're young yeah for sure it's funny because now my mom buys like pre-peeled or pre-de-shelled walnuts yeah. and, ch- and chestnuts from like Costco. Yeah. They come in like these like bags, manufactured bags, and it's just never the same. They're all like wet and slimy. Hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. Yeah, it's a funny thing, you know. You, if you want something, you know, tasty, you kind of gotta part. The part of it's that enjoying that, you know, like taking the shell off or whatever the work that it takes mm-hmm. that's why I love pistachios because it's just like I love snacks and stuff and if I'm sitting down watching TV or a movie or something like that I just want to like constantly put salty things in my mouth and um, pistachios are great or walnuts are great because they slow you down and you can't consume them quick you know so you just bag of chips it's gone you know definitely rice crackers gone <laughs> no, no time there's an investment behind pistachios yeah exactly it's just funny it's like it's a race or something sometimes i feel like i just got to eat these as fast as possible (laughs) so you you mentioned right now that you you spent some time working in the arts and i know that you studied at ocad for uh for photography i think how did that whole what was the i guess the decision between going from photography to to food and uh and how does it kind of impact your work today still uh well it definitely impacts um, a lot of what I do because the one thing OCAD was not as much of a technical arts college or now it's a university or whatever but it was more of like a like theory based and um, artistic practice so they weren't like telling us like you know this is how to take a photo and this is about composition and this is like you know they did a little bit of that but it was also like read these books about images mm the history of photography about different theory um uh and learn about what all the uh, what informs all the photographs that have been taken before and like what do you want to do with your photography like how do you how are you going to use this language to convey a message so it was a lot more academic uh and as a result it informed like informs everything i do you know um it's it was very creative and that was good but at the same time I didn't feel like um, I had anything to say in that medium. Um, I still take photos, actually, um, film mostly, but mm. not something that I use as an artistic outlet to say something or whatever. Just like I like pr- pretty pictures sometimes. Film's <laughs> just nice. Um, but. Yeah, that's kind of what I like. I was working in a not-for-profit art center for you know about eight years or so, and and was working in restaurants at the same time, mm-hmm. and then eventually kind of figured that you know this is kind of where I'm going. You know, this is what I want to do. This is what really excites me. Mm-hmm. So, but the other thing that was always a common thread through no matter what I was doing was always people was always at the center of it. 
like regardless of what I was doing, whether it was working at a gallery or working in a restaurant, um, people getting interact with people and the conversations and the engagement and stuff like that. That was always the thing that, you know, really makes it all worthwhile. I think. Hmm. That's interesting. You kind of ever look back in those times and, and kind of reflect or miss it um, or have some sense of nostalgia about your photography days or, or weren't you working at the gallery? Uh, yeah, sure. Like there's some good people, mm-hmm. great people and a lot of fun and, and got to do some cool things. And, you know, I was lucky to be working there, you know, like those kinds of jobs, like there's a lot of artists, you know, a lot of people go to art school and they get at art school and it's just like, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Like transitioning from education, arts education into like making a living off of making art is uh, not as simple, not simple in the least. Um, For sure. So a lot of those kinds of jobs are like really uh, beneficial for people that like are engaged in the community and and, Mm -hmm. um, that are making work and that are, you know, so like that was one of the reasons why like I kind of decided to leave. I was like, you know what, someone else would be more suited to do this than I would. I was Mm because I wasn't really a practicing artist, so to speak. Fair. But I, I can definitely see, you know, that artistic sense when I see the the bar even that you're right in front of right now. I know people can't see it, but I'm sure they can find photos of it on Instagram or on uh on the internet somewhere. But um, you know, you've kind of have this almost like hand curated selection of little knickknacks and photos and memorabilia. Um and and yeah, even even just the food and the presentation and the ceramics as well. I think it's pretty well informed from a, a strong aesthetic sense. <laughs> People really love that kitschy shit, you know. They little things like that. They that really fills in the fills in the gaps and uh, kind of uh, inspires the imagination a little bit. Um, yeah, they're, it's kind of just like stuff that I've collected along the way. Like you know, when I go to Japan, I'm always I was always thinking for the last like I think probably like three or four trips to Japan, I was like I'm gonna open a restaurant. I'm gonna open a restaurant. So I was like, okay, mm-hmm. now I got buying stuff for this restaurant. You know, there are chefs in Japan that never that won't open a restaurant until they collected uh, the right selection of ceramics for it. Well, wow. until they have purchased all the nicest stuff that they need for it. I think finding the space is probably easier than um, finding all the stuff you need to fill it. That's fair. Mm-hmm. I guess my last question is, uh, when we first talked, you were talking about how Toronto has has a young um, food scene and that, you know, obviously Toronto is not at the level of a New York or an LA. How do you see the food scene in Toronto evolving, um, you know, in the next couple of years, uh, 10 years down the road, especially, you know, considering COVID, who knows it will be short-term or long-term impact one hope that i have is that because of covid um some of the uh laws or rules around uh, sale of alcohol um, permits like there's a lot of red tape involved in uh operating a restaurant owning a restaurant um there's a lot of money that you spend on various pieces of paper mm-hmm. um and even now, like even pre-COVID, it's incredibly difficult to run a restaurant or a small business uh, just because there's just so many expenses. And some of them are so intangible. Like they, they're absolutely, you, you, 
That's one of the things that people always think with restaurants. There's a lot of people that don't know much about restaurants will think that people that own restaurants are doing well and have a lot of money, which is like one of the biggest falsehoods you could uh, imagine. And that, um, that like it's like glamorous, you know, which is also nice. <laughs> it's a lot of hard work. Yeah. Although it's nice, I like it. You know, it's the kind of work I want to be doing. Um, but you know, there's all that stuff. It's just like all this money that goes out the door and it doesn't even connect to anything, you know, various mm -hmm. permits, licenses, insurance, like all this stuff. And it's just like, that's why running a restaurant is, is near impossible to, to do it successfully in Toronto mm -hmm. because there's just too many other expenses that no one even knows about. People get upset about having to pay $15 for a hamburger in a restaurant. Um, and they don't realize that a restaurateur is trying to pay for so many other things. For sure, 100%. So like, I don't know, hopefully post COVID, like some of these things might get re-examined, especially with like liquor license laws and stuff like that. That'd be really cool. Um, because like, you know, things in Japan, like fuck man, like they can run a restaurant out of a closet, you know, without any health license, without any inspection, without any whatever. And they just do it and it's fine, you know? Um, not to say there shouldn't be some, you know, like per, uh, systems in place to keep people safe for sure. But I don't know, maybe it's just cause it's an older culture or whatever. They're just like, they've been doing it for so long that, you know, and in here, yeah, we're young, we're a young city. So, so hopefully that happens, but uh, you know, like people, like the consumer, I think has a lot to learn. The customer, mm. you know? um, dining is like its own thing, you know, like knowing how to dine properly, you know, is like, is like, and it depends on as you go from culture to culture and you go from like restaurant styles to restaurant styles or whatever. And it's, I think the main thing is, is just like to understand inherently that the people that are making you food, like they just want you they want you to enjoy it. They want you to have a nice time, genuinely. And that, you know, you should respect that and respect people that are serving you your food. And, you know, respect the cash, the cash people, the people delivering, the people serving you, the people that are in the kitchen that you never even see, you know, like you gotta respect the whole system. And um, I think people have a lot of, high expectations and, and demands of, of what they get from a restaurant. And I think sometimes it's unrealistic. Um, people just need to be open and, you know, let the experience happen. You think people should be kind of a bit more selective with where they, where they dine or where they eat? Oh, well, not necessarily people like what they like, you know, they'll go mm -hmm. where they go or what they, you know, like there's obviously uh, an expense side of things, you know, people can't afford to go out every night and stuff, but, um, it's definitely, I think, uh, I think it's something that it's like voting with your dollars, you know, like people always say that mm. your money, where your mouth is, you know, um, if you want to embrace the Toronto dining scene, then, you know, I don't know. That sounds stupid. That's like, <laughs> if you, if you want to, if you want to be a foodie, you got to spend the money, you know, to be, you know to enjoy it or whatever. It's not about that. I think it's just like, it's the main thing is it's just respect. Sometimes people are, are can be a little bit cruel, I think. Mm. 
or like really like critical, you know, like needlessly. Um, and the whole tipping thing, you know, is becomes wrapped up into that, you know, like because of this tip, you feel like you have this power and you can loom it over people. Um, tipping's a weird thing, you know, like it's, it's, it's part of it and where we are uh, in Japan, mm -hmm. you know, like if I had the choice, I would not have a system like that, but um, I don't think it's bad. I like to tip too. You know, I love to go to a restaurant and love it so much and then give a big fat tip because like, you know, just you guys did a great job. Thank you so much, you know? And I just wanna show you with this little bit because I can afford to, you know, give a little extra or whatever. Even like, I love um, Confession, I love A&W a lot. <laughs> Mama Burger, which, which, which family member are you? Uh, well, like, you know, I, I love a team burger with like onion rings. If you got a dining companion with you, you get some onion rings. And then, okay. and then you get fries as well, because I got to have fries. Okay, okay. You get onion rings too. You put an onion ring into the team burger and it's really, really tasty. Oh, okay, interesting. Add a little crunch to it. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, just uh, like I enjoy it a lot. Anyway, so sometimes I go in there and like, because I have one, the problem is that I have one like five minutes, like literally a 30 second uh, in my house. So, you know, when in need, I'll pop in there. And I'm very grateful for what they do. Um, the people who work there really lovely and you know sometimes i'll tip them too you know give them you know five or whatever and just because i'm grateful you know mm -hmm. it, uh, and it's a fast food joint and people think that you know you don't have to do that there and you don't but you know and it's like not getting mad when people don't tip you at the restaurant too or they tip you poorly here or whatever it just happens mm -hmm. any number of reasons why it does so trying not to let it bother you you know because it really People always take it personally, and it might be, but it might not be at all. So, yeah. yeah. So I think that's pretty much time. I just want to thank you again for uh, for you know making the time to speak with me and and talk to uh, the audience, and uh, I really appreciate it. Um, I guess as well, you know, just as we're wrapping up, for those who are interested in getting takeout from you guys, how can they support? How can they reach out? Yeah, well, we're doing everything kind of pretty lo-fi, uh, just over email. Like I send out the menu on Thursdays. Um, so if you email uh, sakaibartio uh, at gmail.com or just look us up on Instagram, send a DM with your email address or whatever, then you'll just get in the loop. And then menus go out when they go out. And then uh, Saturday and Sunday is when we do pickups and delivery. There's a certain delivery zone as well, right? If I'm, if I'm correct. Yeah, it's a pretty small zone. Um, I do all the deliveries uh, on bicycle. So um, okay. I go too far. So it's like Ossington to Lansdowne, Queen to Bloor. And I go farther than that, but you know, it's always like kind of time permitting. You kind of make the uh, uh, zone a little smaller because you know, people are always gonna say, hey, can you go a little further? It's just like, <laughs> you know. Um, you guys are doing sake, like a sake, delivery out of the restaurant as well or a sake club or something like that or sake all kinds of um curated boxes like solo bottle like any number of things for sure for sure awesome well thanks again man appreciate the time and thanks everyone for listening and thanks so much man too much man too much man